Thanks for joining me for another special edition of Get Real Health. Today, we'll be looking back at episodes 11 through 18, recorded in late 2020 and early 2021. The topics we'll discuss run the gamut from GMOs to the immune response to processed foods, vegan diets, and COVID-19 diagnostics. Just like the previous special edition, I'll be sharing practical advice from amazing experts sprinkled with great quotes, aha moments, and useful resources. You'll get to look behind the curtain to see how science is done and equip yourself to make sense of the next health headline. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Episode 11 was a conversation with Dr. Anastasia Bodnar about GMOs. Dr. Bodnar is a plant geneticist with expertise in ecology and food system risk assessment. She is co-founder of Cymoms and policy director of Biology Fortified, a nonprofit that fosters conversations about issues in food and agriculture. She and I spoke about GMOs, the roles they play in our food system, and how they are labeled. You may be surprised by the many different ways that genetic engineering is used in our food supply. Here's a quick review of three different ways. Number one, a whole organism. For example, a soy plant or a corn plant might have its DNA modified to serve a certain purpose, and that entire plant might be eaten. For example, livestock are often fed products derived from GMO corn and GMO soy. In the grocery store, you might be able to find a genetically engineered papaya that is able to resist pests. This category is not very common in the grocery store, but very common, as I mentioned, in livestock. Second category is an ingredient that is derived from a genetically modified plant. This, in fact, is quite common. Much of the sugar that we get is from genetically modified beets. The product itself contains no DNA, but the plant was modified and then it was used to create an ingredient. The same goes for soybean oil. There is no DNA in there, but the original plant was genetically modified. Third category that I find particularly interesting is using genetically modified microbes as little factories to pump out a compound. So this has been used for a long time in cheese making. It's also used to create vitamins and flavors and other food ingredients. It's used to create medicines and it's used by Impossible Foods to create their plant-based heme ingredient. This approach is used because it's often more efficient and ecologically friendly than harvesting from nature. Of course, Dr. Bodner and I also talked about GMO safety and how the technology is regulated. And the big takeaway here is don't stress. There is literally no evidence that it's harmful, and there is plenty of evidence that it's not the genetically modified version of the same plant. There's just no mechanism, no evidence, no reason to worry about your health. And in this area, I think it's really important to separate politics and science because some countries have banned GMOs, but it's not because their regulatory bodies have any evidence that they're unsafe. It is for political reasons. In this conversation, it really struck me when Dr. Bodnar said that GMOs have become a scapegoat for everything that is wrong with our food system. Things like farmers being underpaid, for example. In reality, GMO or genetic engineering 
is just a technology and it's up to us to use it wisely. It is neither good nor bad. It is a tool for us to use. So rather than fixating on this technology, Dr. Bodnar recommends supporting your local farmers, eating lower on the food chain, and eating a variety of fruits and vegetables and crops to support crop diversity. To learn more about this topic, I highly recommend the SciMoms page, Intro to GMOs, and checking out the website Biology Fortified. Episode 12 was a conversation with Dr. Galit Alter about how your immune system responds to COVID-19. She is a professor of medicine at the Reagan Institute of Harvard, MIT, and MGH, and she studies the immune response to viral infections as well as vaccine development. We had a great discussion about why severity of COVID-19 varies so greatly across people, and we delved into two of the top risk factors, age and obesity. Dr. Alter's insights on obesity were particularly fascinating. In the last decade or so, it's becoming increasingly clear that fat or adipose tissue is not just an innocent, inert bystander in our biology. It plays a very active role and can heavily influence our immune systems. I have to say, Dr. Alter could barely contain her excitement on this topic, and I look forward to following this field. On the topic of age, I liked how Dr. Alter described the fact that as we age, our immune systems become less plastic, less malleable. And in her words, they have fewer baby cells. You know, in your immune system, you start undifferentiated with many possible different fates, and then you choose your path, choose your career. And there's, in many cases, no going back to square one. So apparently, as we age, we have fewer baby cells. I don't really know what I can do about that, but it is interesting to know why we see such a different response in older adults. Speaking of actions you can take, I did ask Dr. Alter about, is there anything you can do to boost your immune system? And her answer was, get vaccinated. So please don't buy the hype around whatever the latest immune boosting trend is. Getting good nutrition is great, but it is no substitute for a vaccine. Episode 13 was a follow-up conversation with Dr. Galit Alter. We focused this time on vaccines, specifically on vaccine development and on different types of vaccines. My favorite part of this conversation was when Dr. Alter gave me a very good answer to my question, why is it that some vaccines give you immunity for decades and others for a much shorter time? This feature of vaccines, which she calls the durability of response, turns out to vary largely depending on the type of vaccine, because the type of vaccine impacts what she calls the flavor of immune response. Complete viruses that have been killed, for example, which is a longstanding technology used to make vaccines, these vaccines are very effective. They do a great job of tickling us in all the right places, but they are not ideal from a manufacturing perspective. A great quote from Dr. Alter here is that she said that making this type of complete virus, attenuated virus vaccine is like making a fine wine. It can be very hard to get the exact same batch over and over again. They're all safety tested up the wazoo, but every batch will be a tiny bit different, just like wine. So this really helped me to sort of wrap my head around the trade-offs that vaccine developers face. You need to have a technology that's not only effective and safe, but also easy to make consistently, easy to adapt, easy to ship, easy to store. It's hard to get all of those things at once, which is probably why we're seeing different vaccine developers taking different approaches for COVID-19. And it's hard to know in advance which one's going to have the best trade-off profile. 
when we were speaking, the mRNA vaccines had not yet shared their data. So we now know that mRNA vaccines can actually deliver a lot of these characteristics. And I'm super excited to see what these vaccines, this platform can do for other infectious diseases. We really are so fortunate to live in this time of new technology development for vaccines. If COVID had come a decade earlier, things could have gotten considerably uglier. Thank you to all those scientists out there making these platforms possible. Episode 14 was a conversation with Dr. Pamela Ferguson about building a healthy plant-based diet. Dr. Ferguson is a registered dietitian and also holds a PhD in nutrition. She and her kids are fully plant-based. She also has ample experience working with plant-based clients in her practice. I found it sort of ironic that Dr. Ferguson recommended on the whole stressing a little bit less about whether or not people on plant-based diets are nailing every nutrient. Of course, some vegans are low in some nutrient or another, but so are some omnivores. The issue is not which umbrella of foods you're picking from, it's whether you're picking appropriately within the sphere that you inhabit. So it is 100% possible to have a nutritionally robust plant-based diet, but it has to be balanced in certain ways. Dr. Ferguson's simplest advice on this front is to make sure that you're enjoying all four vegan food groups as much as possible, including soy, legumes, pulses, whole grains and starches, number two, number three, fruits and veg, and number four, nuts and seeds. One concept that I hope comes through from this conversation is that if you're shifting from an omnivorous eating pattern to plant-based, it's going to be different in that you're going to be getting a lot of your nutrients a little bit at a time rather than in a big chunk. Protein is a good example here. When you eat steak or burger or whatever, you're getting a big chunk of protein in one meal. When you eat a plant-based diet with a lot of whole fruits and vegetables and grains and pulses, you're going to get a little bit here and there and it will add up to cover your needs. It's a similar story with many vitamins and minerals. A great tip from Dr. Ferguson, just to really get ahead of the curve on a lot of your vitamins and minerals, is to include a glass of plant-based milk every day, especially here in Canada. They're pretty much all fortified so that they'll get you 30% of your calcium, often some B12, vitamin D as well. Dr. Ferguson did recommend supplementing two nutrients and Neither of these are unique to vegans. Number one, vitamin D. This can be an issue, regardless of diet, for people in northern hemispheres who don't get a lot of sunshine. Vitamin B12 is something that she recommends for vegans to get from a supplement. And she also took the time to explain that this is not something that animals make either. It's made by microbes, either in the soil or microbes that inhabit the stomachs of ruminant animals. A final thought for my conversation with Dr. Ferguson that I want to share with you is our discussion of the idea that we need animal products and why is this idea so deeply entrenched? Dr. Ferguson believes that a lot of it stems from the involvement of the industry in the messaging that we grow up with in school, educational materials, and in food guides. And I certainly see that. I also just happened to have read a book called why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows by Melanie Joy. And she speaks to the social and cultural side of it and how we grow up being taught that we need this and that some of this idea that it's necessary is part of this rationalization of a cultural habit. Two other resources to recommend on this topic. Challenge 21 is a great website for getting started trying out a plant-based way of eating. And of course, Dr. Pamela Ferguson's website has 
great recipes, articles, and mini guides on a variety of topics. Episode 15 was a continued conversation with Dr. Pamela Ferguson. This time we talked about how a plant-based diet can be customized to your weight goals. A lot of our conversation focused on the weight loss side of the equation because Dr. Ferguson says that nearly half of her clients do have weight loss goals, but we touched on athletes and weight gain as well. Dr. Ferguson's approach is really personal. She tries to help her clients understand all different aspects of our relationship with food, from understanding which foods you find satiating to addressing portion size, if that's an issue for you, to playing around with meal timing, again, figuring out what works for you, to addressing motivations like emotional eating versus eating to hunger. When looking to weight gain, Dr. Ferguson recommended adding more calorie-dense fats, increasing portions, and adding a mini meal at the end of the day. Regardless of weight goals, Dr. Ferguson recommends filling half of your plate with fruits and veggies. You're going to get a lot of fiber and a lot of vitamins and minerals that way. Perhaps the most important part of this conversation was Dr. Ferguson's call to ask yourself, why? Why do you want to change your body size? There can certainly be health benefits to losing weight, or in some cases to gaining weight, but there's often a major element of diet culture brainwashing going on here as well. Dr. Ferguson is a vocal advocate of encouraging people to give themselves permission to take up space, and I love that message. Personally, I'm trying to divorce myself from a diet culture mindset that's been ingrained in me for decades, but I have to say it's not easy. Part of me hesitated to even have this discussion because I don't want to feed a cultural obsession with weight loss, but I decided to go forward with it because like Dr. Ferguson, I want to help you achieve your goals. I don't think it's my place to tell you what your goal should be, but I do want to urge you to probe your motivations as I'm doing for myself. Episode 16 was a conversation with Dr. Zoe McLaren about COVID-19 diagnostic testing. Dr. McLaren is an associate professor in the School of Public Policy at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She came onto my radar after an appearance on Bill Nye the Science Guy, where she talked about COVID-19 testing. She's a huge advocate of harnessing the power of diagnostic testing at a large scale as a means to control the pandemic. So in our chat, we talked about the different types of testing, including antigen and antibody testing, and how a public policy person thinks about testing differently than individuals do. And I really learned a lot. One piece of this conversation that really stuck with me was understanding the time course of infection and how different diagnostic tests might light up at a different threshold for virus level. Dr. McLaren explained that rapid antigen tests can't detect virus levels quite as low as PCR. In other words, they're less sensitive. But she argues that this difference is really not very meaningful in practice because this very small window of time in which a rapid test might not find it, but a PCR test would, is not an infectious window. She was also very clear that we need to be thinking in terms of frequent accessible testing, not one and done. The second part of this chat that I wanted to pass along was some tidbits about how to interpret test positivity for those of you that like to practice armchair epidemiology like I do. So 
So test positivity is a fraction of COVID tests that come back positive in a population, and it's used as an indicator of how many cases we're missing through under-testing. So a higher test positivity is not a good thing. So this conversation helped me wrap my head around what does 1% mean? What does 2% mean? What does 3% mean? How much does this mean that we're missing? For those of you that are going to be monitoring data dashboards on a regular basis, this is definitely worth listening to. I'm grateful to Dr. McLaren for helping equip me to monitor the data dashboards myself when school reopens in the fall. And we just don't know what's going to happen when young unvaccinated kids are congregating again in a context of new, potentially more contagious variants. Episode 17 was a conversation with Food Science Babe about why processed is not a dirty word. Food Science Babe, her real name is Erin. She is a food scientist who runs a very popular social media account that is all about facts, not fears. That's her mantra. She started this page to combat food marketing that scares people into buying their food by portraying other foods as toxic. And I have to say, I really admire the way she tirelessly hammers away at black and white thinking about good and bad or clean and dirty foods. My top takeaway from this conversation that I want to share with you is to be aware of the appeal to nature fallacy. This is the notion that anything natural must be good and healthy and anything man-made must be bad and unhealthy. This is simply not true. It's not scientific. It is just false. Both natural and man-made compounds can be safe or dangerous. They are completely overlapping. Yet, a natural label is often used to suggest that something is healthy. Similarly, foods with synthetic ingredients are therefore deemed to be toxic and bad. In reality, it's a lot more effective to think in terms of the dose makes the poison, my favorite phrase. There is really no food that is going to poison you in moderation. Of course, if you're intolerant or if it's contaminated with bacteria, that's a different story. But there's no particular food ingredient you need to avoid like the plague because it's going to give you cancer or whatever. That said, you can get into trouble with natural foods or natural anything if you consume them in excess. You can honestly get medical conditions from eating too much kale or drinking too much water. Dose really is what matters and moderation is going to get you very far. The three tips that Aaron and I both share around healthy eating. Number one, focus on foods with better nutrition. This might be fresh or frozen fruits and veggies, but it also might be a can of bean chili. Number two, ignore labels like natural or free of additives. These are marketing labels. They do not tell you how healthy something is. Same thing goes for counting ingredients. Flip the box and look at the nutrition facts. Number three, allow yourself to relax a little bit if you want. A healthy diet can still include some amounts of nutritionally low foods like ice cream, vegan ice cream, whatever, sugary cereal, whatever it is. Something in moderation is not going to make or break your health. One final tidbit that I really appreciated and wanted to pass along is the reminder that food processing is not only safe, but is a real asset to our food system. Preservatives, for example, are invaluable in increasing accessibility and reducing food waste. And that's why they've been used for centuries. So I really hope that our chat leaves you with a more open mind about processed foods and a healthy skepticism about the labels on your food. 
Episode 18 was a second conversation with Food Science Babe. This one was focused on debunking the dirty dozen and explaining the differences between organic and conventional produce, particularly with regards to pesticides. A couple of key takeaways. Number one, your food is safe. Those fruits and veggies are safe. Please stop worrying about pesticides in your food. The levels are well-regulated and incredibly low. They are monitored and every report that is published online, you can look it up yourself at the National Pesticide Testing Programs. They show that the levels in our foods are incredibly low, hundreds to thousands of times below what's considered safe. Second point is that organic is not the same thing as pesticide-free. Organic farmers can and do use pesticides. You can even look up the list of allowable organic pesticides. Just Google approved organic pesticides along with USDA or the other relevant regulatory body in your country. Their main feature is that most, but not all of these allowed pesticides are natural. However, as I hope you know by now, just because something is from nature doesn't mean it's wonderful and safe in any amounts. And just because something is man-made doesn't mean it's horrible and unsafe in any amounts. Organic and conventional pesticides have very much overlapping safety profiles. So it's false to believe that buying organic means you are buying no pesticides. It's also false to believe that you should worry health-wise about the pesticide levels in non-organic food. In fact, as Aaron explains in great detail in our conversation, the dirty dozen is utterly nonsense. What they do is they take official government testing data from the pesticide data program and they distort it. They literally count detectable pesticide traces without taking levels into account. Not only that, but they are measuring conventional non-organic pesticides and not looking at the organic ones. That doesn't mean you should be worrying about organic, only that the answer was already predetermined before the exercise was done. Of course, organic produce will look better when you're testing for non-organic pesticides. In fact, one thing I learned from this conversation is that many natural organic pesticides don't even have assays or tests that allow us to measure their levels. So Aaron's plea, which I will echo, is to not let fear of pesticides discourage you from buying lots of fruits and veggies. The more, the merrier. Buy the ones that look delicious and support your local farmer if you can. On a personal note, I'm grateful to Aaron for raising awareness around the negative consequences of elitist food messaging. In our chat and on her page, she often shares studies that reinforce that there is a cost to implying or stating that organic is the only safe, healthy choice and that low-income people are the ones that suffer most from this. It's just not okay to be sending the message that perfectly safe foods are unsafe. To learn more, you can check out the National Pesticide Data Program. You can check out safefruitsandveggies.com and, of course, Food Science Babe on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in to this look back at episodes 11 through 18 of this show. My goal, as always, is threefold. First, I want to give you answers to your health-related questions. Second, I want to give you a deeper understanding of how science is done. And third, I want to help boost your scientific toolkit so that you can make informed choices and make sense of health headlines, fads, and marketing labels. I would love to hear from you about what you've learned and what you'd like to hear more of. I'll be back again soon with highlights and reflections from another batch of episodes from season one. If you appreciate my show, please share it with others or post a review. I look forward to connecting with you again soon. 
In the meantime, you can find me on social at Fueled by Science. You can also check out my website at fueledbyscience.com to see my articles and family-friendly plant-based recipes. Take care. <laughs>